Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton, and I'm joined by Adam Grossman. We have quite a show today, and Adam has an interview with Ray Warren. Media is a huge driver of revenue and engagement in the sports industry, and Ray is a senior executive at, at NBC. Adam, can you give us more details around Ray's background? Ray Warren is the president of Telemundo Deportes. In this role, Warren oversees NBC Universal's Telemundo Enterprises growing sports business and leads its strategy across all platforms and networks. He is responsible for developing opportunities both within existing franchises and future acquisitions with a key focus on the FIFA World Cup properties. Warren joined NBC Universal Telemundo Enterprises from NBC Sports, where he was an executive vice president and chief revenue officer of NBC Sports Regional Networks. You know, Ray has such a wide range of experience in, in the sports media and in the agency world. You know, Adam, can you give us some more detail into, into the breadth of that experience? Ray's over 30-year career spans several senior leading positions at advertising and media companies, including serving as president of Carib Media Group uh, America's managing director of OMD USA and president and CEO of Raycom Sports. He's also held several senior sales positions at ABC Television Networks. Ray uh, has had a long and storied career. Um, he's very candid about his experience. He's very candid about what he's learned. And he's has some uh, really interesting stories and really interesting anecdotes about his time in the industry. It really is a wide range of experience, and, and we hope that all comes out in the interview. So please enjoy this, this wide-ranging conversation with Ray Warren. Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. Uh, with us today is Ray Warren. Uh, we're very excited to have Ray. He's got a uh, very long and successful career in the sports industry. We're going to dive into that uh, in detail during the podcast. So Ray, first, thanks for joining the podcast. And then second, uh, happy for you to walk us through your background um, and how you got into the, success, to the role you're in today. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Adam, for having me. It's uh, a pleasure. I do enjoy um, speaking uh, with the youth of America and the future business leaders. So it's always good to uh, help any, you know, I, we didn't get a lot of that back when I was in college. And so it's, uh, it's really great and fun to be here. Thank you. Um, right. So background. Um, I actually will take you through it in a linear way, um, it goes back a long way. So sit back and you know, pop open a can of water. But um, <laughs> basically, I started, I wanted to be a disc jockey on WNEW FM radio. Um, that was how I, I guess I wound up in the media business was I wanted to be behind the microphone. Um, and was trying to get on the college radio stations I'd been accepted to, found that all of them had stations, all of them had long waiting lists. And so um, I found one school, York College, City University of New York, in Jamaica, Queens, um, that didn't have a radio station. And I thought that would be a cool opportunity to start one. Um, so I think that's a little bit of what we can talk about, which is exploring things, entrepreneurship, taking risks, um, and directing your own path. I didn't want to sit on a radio waiting list, frankly. So um, found another guy in a communications class I was taking and wanted to start a radio station too. And we uh, basically wrote a business plan, presented it to the uh, board of administrators at York College. They gave us $25,000 and said, uh, so go build a radio station, which we did. Um, 
and it was pretty successful, um, WYCR-FM. So I always had good time slots for my show. Um, and graduated thinking I might head out to the wilderness and look for the midnight to 6 a.m. shift, uh, sweeping floors and doing early morning radio or late evening, depending on how you consider 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. But um, my dad passed away in 1975. I graduated in 76, and um, it just wasn't meant to be. My mom took it hard, and I didn't see myself disappearing. Uh, my sister was married with a baby, and I didn't see myself disappearing into the wilderness and leaving her uh, back in New York. So um, abandoned the plan. Um, spent the summer thinking about, okay, now what? And my cousin was a media director at Ted Bates Advertising and uh, he'd known about uh, my desires to be a DJ and said, look, I, I don't have a DJ job open at Ted Bates, but there is a job for a network radio buyer. And you'd be buying advertising on behalf of um, certain clients like the US Navy and Nissan and uh, Warner Lambert, which at the time was making dentine inserts and all sorts of things. And, you know, they want young demos, so you're the right kind of guy. And um, I interviewed and got the job. Um, $8,000 a year, proudly saying. Um, three weeks vacation when you got to 10000 but you either quit or got fired before you got to 10000 So they really, the three weeks vacation was a bit of a joke. Um, and I found that I really liked um, media, and I liked negotiating, and I liked kind of organizational stuff. I was not working off Excel spreadsheets. I was working off of uh, 13 column pads with a pencil and I'm a lefty. So at the end of the day, I'd have to go wash the side of my hand from all the graphite that had rubbed onto my hand by the end of the day um, and used a big old calculator that weighed about 40 pounds and uh, very, very different times to say the least. So, um, Went into um, the TV, the, the radio buying business, had a friend I met there um, who went on to great success in our business. And um, he left to go to another agency. And uh, a few months later, he called me up and said, hey, there's a job as a TV buyer. Um, so, you know, you kind of step up from buying radio to buying TV. And I like that. Um, and I went over to BBDO, uh, which is a big creative shop part of the omnicom uh, group now and um started buying network television for campbell soup had some interesting moments um there and um just to get a raise in the agency business it's pretty much you have to leave because they don't give big raises at the uh, in the ad agencies it's it's a really tough business it's gotten tougher over the last 40 years um and I went to another um, agency called Benton and Bowles, where I was the head buyer on General Foods, which was like Maxwell House Coffee and all sorts of great brands you might know. Um, but that's where I got connected to sports because as part of my responsibilities as a TV buyer, I made a purchase of the 1984 Olympics. I'm sorry, the 1980 Olympics, the Winter Olympics. The U.S. boycotted the Summer Olympics. but um, I remember we had a spot for Maxwell House in an afternoon slot that would have been like men's downhill skiing. And I got a call, and these are weeks before the Olympics started, um, from ABC, and they asked if I would be willing to move my spot from late in the afternoon to earlier in the morning 
and I negotiated a deal that I thought was fair. It turned out to be the gold medal winning game of the 1980 U.S. hockey team. Wow, and, um, wow that's amazing. Yeah, it was uh, like one of those, you know, and nobody forgot it. Like my client never forgot it. I never forgot it. And ABC never forgot it. Um, and so the spot obviously did twice what the men's downhill would have done, maybe three times. And um, shortly after that, ABC called and said, hey, you know, we like your style. You're a good guy. You're fair but tough. Fair is important. Tough is important. Would you want to sell advertising um, to buyers? And having been on the other side of the desk, you know, the deal and the drill. Because um, for agency buyers, I mean, you're really like a broker of their money. So your advertisers entrust their money with you and you're spending it. And, um, you know, you got to be pretty thoughtful and thorough. So I said, sure, because there was another pay raise. And so um, I hit my goal of making $30,000 a year, 30 years old from eight. <laughs> and um, wound up um, as a sales planner. I was really doing all backroom stuff, pricing the inventory, determining the market value, the demand against that inventory, and making sure we didn't sell out of the good stuff, uh, which in those days was happy days in <laughs> Laverne and Shirley. Uh, before we had to start selling the tough stuff, which was shows you won't remember, like TJ Hooker, and maybe you remember the Love Boat. But um, in any event, uh, that was a really cool job because we did use a lot of, as best we could back in 1980, uh, data to determine supply-demand ratios and pricing, et cetera. Um, and then I wanted to get into sales. They said that I'd be going over there to get into sales and wound up getting an offer um, to move into the sports sales department because the guys who remembered asking me if I'd move my spot liked me and I hit it off with them. And so I went into sports sales. That was now we're in 1981 and I'll move this along a lot faster. So I spent eight years at ABC, um, promoted quite frequently. Um, luckily for me, it was a different time. No one really knew about media planning and buying in 1980, 81. I'm not sure how many colleges offered courses in it. So we were kind of in a pioneering way um, going into this business. People fell into it. There were history majors and philosophy majors, English majors, journalists who wanted to write but wound up in the sale. I mean, it was just a, an amalgam of <laughs> misfits to some degree. Um, but it was a great lot of fun. And um, we wound up uh, doing pretty well. And eight years later, I got an offer to leave ABC uh, after Cap Cities had bought us in 85 and um, I was you know on their on their radar as, as somebody to keep an eye on but I was also 34 in 1988 and um, got an offer to go to a company called Raycom Sports it was a fledgling TV company they didn't have a guy with a Rolodex like the one I had built up in the eight years I was selling you know I was vice president of network sales, doing the upfronts for prime time and all that. So they kind of hired me for my Rolodex, but they also gave me a piece of the business, which turned out to be a pretty good deal. Yeah. Um, and I went there from 1988 with a three-year contract. It was kind of like Gilligan's Island, a three-year, three-hour tour, which I thought, because it was a three-year contract and Tom Murphy and Dan Burke both individually said to me, you know, if this thing doesn't work out at this Raycom thing, there will always be a light on for you here at ABC as long as we're here. So that was comforting. And um, I was at Raycom for 15 years. We wound up selling the company twice. 
I became president and CEO in 1996, COO in 94, CEO in 96. Um, and uh, we had sold the company to a group that said, yeah, well, we're going to pay you, but you got to hit these numbers first and then we'll pay you. So they put me in charge on a five-year contract um, to make sure that I had some skin in the game that if we didn't hit the numbers we promised them, we wouldn't get the money they promised us. And so um, I spent five years hitting those numbers. We got paid, they got paid, and then I left because I had made my money. I'd been there for 15 years and really didn't exactly want to do that anymore. So now I'm like 42, I guess, 2006, 2002, something like that, 48. Yeah, 48. Um, and so I kind of took a time out for a month or two deciding what did I want to do. And I realized that after 15 years um, of trying to get a company sold, which we were very successful at, um, but it's all head down on the road, seven presentations a day, five days a week, whatever, um, that I, I kind of missed where I left at ABC in 1988. Um, I didn't know what had happened in the general market. I didn't really know what the big media mainstream business looked like because I was so focused on Raycom Sports. And um, a friend of mine knew a another guy who's now a friend of mine. And um, I decided I wanted to get back into the agency business. I felt like what better place to go learn about lots of things, both client side, um, content supplier side, uh, all sorts of sides. Um, but then an agency, which is a great, 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 great training ground. Um, so I went kind of back to the agency business, having started out in it um, in 2003, um, at a place called OMD, which is part of Omnicom. I think I said that earlier, um, as the head of all investing. So I had national network TV, network radio, local TV, local radio, out, out of home, digital, which in 2003 was just coming out of the bubble. So everything had been broken and cratered and crashed and they were kind of rebuilding. Um, and I did that for a year and a half, about two, two, and a half, two and a half years or three. Um, when I got a call from a headhunter that Kara was looking for a president of their uh, media group America, so it would be North and South America. And having been a president and CEO, my title at OMD was managing director, which is a European term for a EVP, basically. Um, but it's not a president, that's a director in Europe. Um, so anyway, I like the idea of President Cara Media Group America, uh, Media Group Americas. I like David Verkland, who hired me. He was one of the smartest guys I'd ever met. Um, and I've always thought it was really important to work for people who you feel like you can learn something from. I think if you ever get to the point where that's not happening, and I'm 66 years old, so I'm still working for someone like that. Um, and I think that's important. Uh, to just jump out of bed in the morning. And, uh, you know, I say to a lot of people, it's, you know, happiness is wanting to go to work in the morning and wanting to go home at night. Um, and a lot of that happens when you have someone that, well, when you're, when you're doing something you love and when you're doing it with people you like and respect. And um, personally, when you're doing it for someone who you feel like might know a little bit more than you do. Um, so I went to work for David Brooklyn. Um, but after five years in the agency business, it kind of wore me down. Um, a long story that I won't bore anyone here with, but 
there was a Walmart account, a Walmart, like Bentonville, Arkansas, Walmart, that went, uh, went to Cara and a company from Chicago actually, Draft Foot Cone. And um, there was a total scandal with the client who was bringing in agencies for the business. It's probably all in the Wall Street Journal. And it was then, I'm guessing it's in an archive. Now, anyway, long story short, we lost the account after winning it because of some things that went on that we had absolutely zero to do with. Um, and that's also in the papers. Um, and I just said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not good at this. I don't like the gray area of business. I like the black and white area of business. So I like a sales target or a operating cash flow target, or I need a target and I need it to be quantifiable and, you know, not subject to someone's whim or whimsy. Like they like this guy, so they give him the business. It's, it's not how I move or roll. So I quit basically. And, um, sat on the beach. I was writing letters. It's funny. We're fortunate enough to have a house in the Hamptons. And I was writing letters to people saying, on the beach, while on the beach, I'm writing to you looking for work. And um, again, this was 2007. So I'd been around. I made a pretty good name for myself. And I'll talk about the brand that is your name here. Um, you know, that's all anybody has in business is your name. And your name is your brand. And uh, doesn't doesn't take kindly to tarnish and beatings and scratches and scuffs. So I always feel it's important to, you know, protect the brand. And that's true for a marketer. It's also true for anybody going into business. Um, and um, yeah, so basically went to work at Comcast. I had a buddy of mine uh, who I had known from my Raycom days um, and he was running the regional sports networks and um, it was pretty quick. I mean, we, we had a cup of coffee in November and I started in January. I had an interview with um, Jeff Shell and Steve Burke who are you know, currently running NBC. So I've known those guys for quite some time and uh, was brought in as the uh, chief revenue officer executive vice president, chief revenue officer. So I will continue to show a little bit of my ego. Um, <laughs> did that for eight years and, and liked it a lot. Um, it was brought me back to the Raycom days, put me inside a great company with great people. Definitely learned a lot from the guy who brought me in. His name is John Littner. Um, and then I got a call from the guy I had worked for at OMD who said, his name is Joe Yuva. He said, hey, you know, they're looking for a president of Telemundo down in uh, Miami. Are you interested in that? They've got the World Cup and it's a big deal. And I think you're the perfect guy for the job. And I thought about it for 30 seconds and then figured I'd just have to go home and see if I can convince my wife. And that took another minute. So in about a minute and a half of actual time, we accepted the offer. I got to become president again. So that's president in three different industries. I'm proud of that, actually. President of a sports marketing company, president of an ad agency, president of a sports network. Um, that's, that's just me. But um, I'm not a total egomaniac, but it is kind of fun to be able to check those boxes. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I came down to Miami in September of 2016. The Men's World Cup in Russia was being played in, well, in 10 cities around Russia in June, July of 2018. So we basically had less than two years to stage the very first world men's world cup 
in the history of Telemundo and NBC Universal and Comcast. So I had eyes on me from everybody up to Brian Roberts, who is Steve Burke, Jeff Schell, Brian Roberts, who's the CEO of Comcast. I mean, everybody wanted this thing to be great. And um, it was great. And that's a good thing. But um, to say I splinted for 18 months um, <laughs> is no joke. Um, literally from September of 16 till July of 18, it was pedal to the metal every day, morning to night. Um, probably seven or eight trips to Russia, maybe more, about five or six to Switzerland where FIFA's headquartered. Um, it's a crazy, a lot of, a lot of trips from Miami to New York, probably 40, um, just to keep the company aware of how things were going, what was going on, et cetera. And, um, you know, we, we, we won an Emmy as the best live sports broadcast in 2018 in Spanish language, just keep it honest. Um, but it's still a pretty big deal. It's on my desk behind me. Um, and I coined a phrase when I got there, Joe, who had been kind of running the sports department, he was really chairman of all of Telemundo. The gentleman uh, referred me to the folks who hired me as president of Telemundo. He had a saying, and it was correct at the time, for Telemundo to be World Cup ready. We have to be World Cup ready. And so I would walk around the building for the first few weeks and read about being World Cup ready. And one day on the drive home, you know, I thought, no, it's really, we have to be World Cup great. Yeah. I don't think World Cup ready will get it done. I mean, it'll get it done, but that's like kind of the table stakes part is World Cup ready. Um, and again, I don't think Joe is not, I think he was right. And in, in that was what they had to focus on. But once I got there with 18 months to go, it was World Cup great. And that became a North Star that I proselytized throughout the building that if you have a question about what you're doing or if you have a thought about talent or something, just put it up against World Cup great. And yeah. if it satisfies you, then it's World Cup great. Then that's, you know, that's going to be good enough for me because I had to do a quick analysis as a team from September to the end of the year, which I did and was really happy to find out that we had an amazing team ready to, Many of them had done some World Cups at Univision, so it wasn't their first rodeo, although it was mine. Um, and yes, and everybody bought into World Cup great. It got to the point where, like, Steve Burke was talking about being World Cup great. I was doing hashtag WCG, and people knew what I was talking about. So yeah. kind of created a brand within a brand that um, the whole company embraced, be it the news department, the programming department. We, everybody wanted to be World Cup great, and, uh, and we worked. And um, then last summer, we did the Women's World Cup um, in 2019 in France and beat the ratings we had delivered in 2015, which is kind of hard to do these days in sports or any kind of programming when your ratings are higher than what you got four years ago. Foxes went down, the English language um, purveyor of, of Women's World Cup. And by the way, you know, they have the U.S. women's team, as do we, but our audience really likes the Mexican national team and the, US, and the, and the women's Mexican national team did not make it to the World Cup. Wow. So for us to do better in 19 without the Mexican national team women than we did in 15 with the Mexican national team women was saying a lot and everybody inside the company gets it and got it. Um, we had a very different marketing uh, and our whole approach 
wasn't so much about turning the U.S. women's team into rock stars with, you know, the Fox marketing I thought was way off base. It was more rock stars and make them like NFL players. And we looked at them and said, are you kidding? Half of these women don't even get paid. Half of them have to like go to work. Well, first they get out and make breakfast for the kids, take them to school, drop them off at school, go to work, pick the kids up, get them home from school, start them on their homework, make dinner, and then go practice until midnight in the dark. Not complete dark, street lamps, not necessarily stadium lights. And so our, our, our kind of moving forward moment was, uh, if they worked this hard to get there, get here, imagine how hard they'll work to win. And, and, it, and it resonated with women all over the place. And so that is our, so I think Adam, I may have answered a couple of extra questions beyond my bio. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, what I was gonna say, I, there's a lot of good content in there and we'll try to get through as much as we can in terms of follow-up questions, but I kind of want to start it at, um, at the beginning because it's kind of bookended your career, which is about risk-taking and your desire mm-hmm. to, you know, you know, you said you spent a minute or 30 seconds, I guess a minute and a half total between you and your wife deciding on the Telemundo opportunity, but that is a significant jump and a significant move. So yeah. how has, how have you decided, you know, to make risk kind of like a central narrative in your career journey? And how do you look at risk when you're talking about uh, evaluating opportunities in the sports industry? Yeah. So, um, it kind of goes to one of the notes I made, which is, you know, comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I, I've always been comfortable being uncomfortable. Well, I wasn't always comfortable being uncomfortable. I was just uncomfortable. But after a while, because I mean, honestly, I will tell you that leaving ABC and Dan Burke and Tom Murphy, both trying to keep you in your job at ABC. Now, they just bought the company in 85. It's 1988. I'm going to Raycom Sports to be the head of sales there, a company in Charlotte, North Carolina, with rights at the time to just ACC basketball. We wound up adding Big Ten, Big Eight, Southwest, Pac-10, Metro, Blockbuster Bowl, ABC College Basketball. I mean, we grew the company a lot. But when I made that, and again, that was another quick decision with, interestingly, my (laughs) ex-wife. So we have a first wife to Raycom and the most recent and current wife going to Telemundo. Um, But it was kind of, it wasn't as quick. Telemundo was quicker. Um, But it was about, you know, going for it. And saying, hey, you know what? There's always, just if you keep your brand safe, your name, and if you're good and smart and you know what you're doing, you can take some risks. You can take more at 34 years old in 1988. That was, there were two things going on then. One was, hey, worst case scenario, I'm 37. Tom and Dan said there'll be a light on for me and I'm getting a piece of the, I've always been somewhat entrepreneurial. Um, After my, I mean, not to get maudlin, but my mother died 18 months after my father died. And I was, I quit Ted Bates because I didn't want to work on a new business pitch that they wanted me to work on because I just, I was so shook up over my mother's death. And I just went back to a pancake house and flipped pancakes for six months and tried to buy a bar in Hicksville, Long Island. And that was always the entrepreneur in me. Like, I'll make anything work. Um, just have to, you know, sit there and figure it out. So, um, you know, again, parents started at a very young age. So I was kind of an orphan at 23. Um, that's uncomfortable. Um, figured it out. Three of my friends moved into the house I was living in. They helped pay the rent and the lights and 
all that. And then, you know, just got jobs and worked hard and kept my name uh, in a good place and became comfortable being uncomfortable. And people have asked me, well, okay, but yeah, right. You really want to get to comfortable, right? I'm like, no, actually, there is no getting to comfortable. Otherwise, you're not doing it right. I mean, the idea is you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. The status or status, how is T-A-T-I-S, is uncomfortable. It's never going to not be uncomfortable. There's always going to be new stuff coming down the pike. If it's new technology, new data points, new clients. new. So, you know, to your point, Adam, to circle all the way back, I get Joe Yuva, who's a dear friend of mine, who, you know, gosh, we got – when you work on agencies, you might probably know this, you know enough people, and you work on new business, you really bond with people. And so Joe and I are pals and will be forever. Um, it was, go to Telemundo. Okay, that's a Spanish language speaking network. In Miami, okay, I was born in New York and thought I was gonna die, no, it's who knows. But I was born in New York, bred in New York, a lot of your students, if they're from Chicago, will not like the fact that I'm a Yankee fan and a Giants fan and all that stuff. But, you know, you talk about a born and bred New Yorker. This is the, you know, it's kind of what I do. So, okay, go to a Spanish language TV network. You don't know the language. You don't know the people. They don't know you. None of what you've done over the last 40-something years means a thing to these people. You're the gringo being dropped in to Telemundo to run the World Cup. Are you kidding? Like, we need you to tell us how to do the World Cup? I think. That's insane. Um, and then sell your apartment on the west side of Manhattan and move yourself down to Miami on a three-year deal, rent an apartment, you know, start driving to work. I'd never driven to work in my life. I either took subways and the Long Island Railroad or I walked. Um, and so now I'm like literally talk about sometimes if I think back on it, it takes my breath away. It didn't at the time. It could now. But yeah, so comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think one of the things I also wanted to talk about that was a theme in what you were saying in the intro is um, learning and how you've identified learning as something you've always wanted to do and how you've identified that you wanted to learn from people. You've talked about a lot of the executives that you worked with, but how, you know, again, you've also been the president, as you mentioned, of three separate uh, entities. Um, and typically, I'm not sure learning when you're talking about being the president is the core thing that people think about. So, again, how, how have you made learning and prioritized learning um, as something that has impacted your career and how you've made career decisions in the sports industry? You know, it's, it's it, curiosity is really the word. Um, I just have always been curious. I've been curious about everything. I mean, at some point, I bought American Express. I think I was able to get my first American Express card. Now, this is all before the internet and all before digital and all before cable TV. And I bought a series of books from American Express that was just titled How Things Work. And it just basically, and yeah, I had another book, How to Do Everything Right. I mean, I've just always been curious and I've always wanted to excel. I probably have a, you know, just a, a I just always want to be, maybe it's, you know, low self-esteem. I don't know. But I always wanted to be that guy who had the answer. My high school friends used to call me Never Wrong Warren. They would say, do not have an argument with Ray Warren. He is never (laughs) wrong Warren. And if he's not wrong, he will convince you he's, and if he is wrong, he will convince you he's right. And you will admit you're wrong. 
and then you'll find data and he'll argue about the data. Um, so it's been, but, and that's, you know, obviously I digress, but it's really curiosity. It's just about being curious about things. So, I mean, going to a company called Raycom Sports in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing ACC basketball. Yeah. You know, what the hell? And then, um, you know, going to Miami to run Telemundo Sports and bring in the first World Cup ever. I mean, I sat on a stage in front of Brian Roberts and Steve Burke and Jeff Shell and the whole crew and sat there and said, look, in 2018, this was in 2017, we will bring in the very first World Cup to Telemundo and to NBC Universal. I wonder what it was like when Dick Ebersole sat on this stage in 1988, 30 years ago, and talked to you all, or some of you, and new people come and go, about the first Olympics. Well, think about that. What the Olympics has done for, ABC, uh, for NBC yeah. and what the World Cup will do for Telemundo in 2048, what will the World Cup have meant to Telemundo? I mean, like, I think that's the coolest thing to be connected with ever. And so, again, it's curiosity fuels the learning and the prioritized learning. If you're curious about everything, then almost everything's a priority. And you just can't consume enough. I mean, that was, you know, the four books of, you know, how things work. Or, I mean, I'm the ultimate Googler. I, you know, just I'm always curious about, about everything, frankly. There's nothing that doesn't interest me, hardly, other than, you know, the Kardashians. Um, but yeah, that kind of builds into the next question I have, which is about uh, media buying and advertising more generally. Um, our students, you know, are learning about the industry and how the industry works. And clearly, you know, television rights and media rights deals are a big component of the industry. Can you just, one, explain like, what media buying and um, what you were doing kind of early in your career? Sure. And then two, two, you mentioned the, you know, the use of data and how that impacted your earlier in your career and how you're thinking about it now. Can, so can you talk about the evolution of data in the, you know, the media buying and media process that you're looking at now? Well, sure. Um, I can start. I can definitely talk about my time in the agency business because a lot's happened since 2000. I mean, I left CARE in 2007, but I left really, I was much more of an exec manager at CARE, so I can talk about data up to 2004 as it relates to media buying and planning. Well, I, I guess more about, you know, maybe media more generally, you know, whether, yeah, like, um, um, carriage fees, advertise, you know, just kind of how the media business works sure. and all the different, you know, you can use your career obviously as a frame, which you did a lot at the beginning, but using your career, career as a frame to like explain how kind of revenue is generated in the media business. Yeah, sure. So, you know, buying media is um, an outcome of data. Yeah. Basically companies have a decision of like how many boxes of uh, tide did they sell last year? and where, and how many do they want to sell next year, and where, and um, how many people do we have to reach, how many times to kind of get in their head the next time they're walking down the supermarket aisle that Tide is the best laundry detergent there is, um, and that they don't want to walk past the Tide box. And, and that's a math exercise, basically, um, it's how many you find your target demo, you find the people who buy your product, who have the intent to buy, talk about buying it, you know, uh, 
have a preference for it. So you do all sorts of you know research, be it qualitative and quantitative. You can look at Nielsen numbers at the shop out shopping aisle. You can look at Nielsen numbers for television ratings. Um, you can do focus groups. You can do all sorts of things, and you basically and put all that data into uh, some sort of form, and um, it'll inform your creative output. Is it more about the price? Is it more about the color of the box? Is it more about the smell of the laundry detergent? Like, what is it that make people want to buy Tide? Smell their clothes when they come out of the dryer. Um, and then with all that, once you know how many of your target audience you have to reach and how many times, you can put that into, the, into a media planning process, which will determine the audience that you have to reach, how, they're, how they are reached, and um, how much money you have to spend to reach them. If you're buying primetime television on NBC, or if you're buying national radio, or if you're buying outdoor billboards, or if you're, you know, you can get into the whole shopper marketing segment, but just in terms of media, to keep it in media, um, there's all sorts of levers and dials and switches that you play with and uh, run continuous modeling to determine if you're getting where you have to go. Um, with the advent of digital and the information with cookies and subscriptions and all sorts of ways to track consumer behavior online, um, the data is just you know bigger than all of us and probably not unusable by any means, but it so far outweighs the ability to break it down that um, you know I think you get a much better sense of what you have to do. Um, but you know it's 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 a lot to do, and so that's now created programmatic trading, um, addressable television. You know, companies like Comcast have set-top boxes in 25 million homes. They can read that data, so they know if a show works or not. People pay for that programming, so uh, you know Comcast will pay someone who produces programming a certain amount based on how much their viewers like it or don't like it. It's a bigger negotiation than that. So, I mean, to get into the weeds would take another hour and a half. But in general, everything is based on supply and demand. And, um, you know, there's a lot, of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of business done on data, whether it be set-top box data, whether it be, you know, information coming out of uh, online uh, composition of audiences and what they're doing and where they're doing it and companies that can track that and store it and sell it and do all sorts of things with it. Yeah, and that leads to the next question, um, which is about the changing of the way that, you know, the change in consumption patterns. You know, obviously when you started, there's, and still now, obviously there's a focus on linear broadcast and linear distribution, but now, you know, obviously NBC in particular has started its own streaming platforms and there's a change from digital or social channels. So um, kind of how have you seen the evolution of media? I know this is a broad question. Um, and again, probably it deserves its own podcast potentially, but uh, how are you seeing the evolution of media and the change in media to these, you know, disparate and multiple different channels of distribution? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, so a, I think it's gone from um, the content suppliers control to the audience's control. And that's just based on convenience and the technology has, created convenience it used to be if you wanted to watch a show you had to be home in front of your television set at eight o'clock on tuesday or nine o'clock there was no way to tape it there's no dvr uh, i think they came out in the early 80s 
um, which is called a VCR, video something recorder. Um, so long story short, it's about convenience now. And one of the great things about staying in the sports business is the content supplier still has some control because the need to watch sports live is almost absolute. I think 99% of all sports viewing is done live. Maybe it's 97%, but it's not 50%. And there are TV shows that have 50% of their viewing live and 50 delayed and 30% live and 70 delayed. So, you know, it's just thrown, it's made data that much more important. You know, who is watching? When do they watch? Do they watch in 30 days or seven days or three days? And it makes marketing very different for films. If you're releasing a movie on Friday night, Saturday, you want to promote it on Thursday. Now someone, you may, 30% of that audience may see it live on Thursday and the rest might see it in a week and that's too late. So you have to do other things that ensure they'll see it on Thursday, which is digital buying, et cetera. So it has turned it into a very kind of complex game of whack-a-mole. Um, it's just really hard to, viewers can find the content they want, when they want it, where they want it. Getting the ad in front of them when you want them to see it is another whole story, and it's become much, much, much more difficult. And I think marketers, um, they're, they're all spending more money, and they're probably less sure. And there was a great, I think it was Wanamaker, you may remember, you'll know this, because he was a Chicago retailer, right? So I'm sure half my advertising is wasted if I can just figure yeah. out which half. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's half. You know, you hope it's more than you, you hope that you know where more than half of your advertising is going, but I don't know. I haven't heard anybody update that in quite a while. Yeah. Well, people, I still hear that quote all the time, so I can, I can confirm that <laughs> it's still something that people are saying, but it leads to the next question. And you've brought this up again, as your move to Telemundo, um, you know, you, you've mentioned, you know, kind of your history of your evolution going from broadcast network, now looking at Telemundo, which is obviously a different audience and how, you know, again, another evolution in media consumption is maybe the, the bifurcating or targeting specific audiences, particularly in the, in the current environment. So um, from your perspective, how has the change and the shift to targeting, you know, one of the ways that advertising potentially is more effective is that you can better target audiences. Um, mm -hmm. So one, you know, how, how have you seen that shift? And two, you mentioned this in coming to Telemundo is that you didn't necessarily know about the, uh, or know as much about the, the Hispanic Latino audience. So can you just talk about what it's like to kind of move into a more targeted audience from a, a media perspective? Yeah, sure. I, you know, it, it's, um, it's more about, it's funny because I'd spent eight years at the regional sports networks and I would tell stories, you know, on sales calls or internally. Um, I was chief revenue officer. I wasn't exactly making a lot of sales calls, but people paint their face green before they go to a Celtics game. And the jerseys that people wear to Bulls games and Blackhawks games are stunning. Um, and that's not unlike Argentina fans in the World Cup or Colombian fans in the World Cup. In other words, the passion you see in a local market regional sports network is just the size of the country once you leave the United States of America because we've never understood soccer slash football. Um, and, the, and, and A, how great a game it is, but B, how impactful the World Cup is. I mean, and I work for NBC ultimately, but when they say that the Olympics is the biggest sport on the planet, I correct them all the time. Like, not, not exactly. Not right. exactly. 
the World Cup is the biggest. And so for me and Adam, maybe that's the simplicity of what I've done um, is I've stayed in a business about with passion and loyalty and engagement at the core. And so when you have passion, loyalty and engagement live, it's not that hard. (laughs) You know, like if you want to, if you want to really just keep doing what you've been doing, go from, you know, the ACC or the big 10 and understand regional advertising and passion of fans in the Southeast conference or the ACC and Duke, North Carolina, Friday afternoon, close the schools, close the banks. We're all watching the tournament. Or you want to go to the world cup, close everything because the world cups on, I mean, everything. Um, I talk about this with our finance people all the time because when we bid on rights fees now, all they want to do is talk about linear decline. And I say to them, look, an Argentina fan 20 years from now is still going to watch the World Cup. There's not going to be any less viewing and it's not going to be delayed. We just have to count it and figure out. You can't keep telling me linear is going down and not tell me, well, let me at least show you how much digital is going up because the fans are going to watch. They're going to find it. and so that's kind of like the conundrum of sports right now, which is guys who are running big companies with lots of entertainment and news and sports. They want to throw everything into the linear decline when in fact, yeah, less people may actually watch the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills in five or 10 years. They're, they're not going to watch less sports. <laughs> yeah. You know? I, I agree. And as we're good. For the end of time, I wanted to ask a couple final questions. And I do want to ask you about the World Cup specifically. You know, one of the things we ask, we send out questions before the podcast is what was your most rewarding professional experience and what was your most challenging professional experience? And I think you're the first guest to say the most is the same experience, right? Is that both those <laughs> right, the most challenging? And yeah. you mentioned already, but can you go into detail about what it was like to, to, to work on the World Cup basically from scratch and put it together as fast as you did it and as successfully as you did it? Yeah, it was, um, well, the first thing, so I got there in September and I had 90, well, they have a, there's a great book out called The First 90 Days. And, you know, it does talk about, you know, when you're getting parachuted into something, first thing you have to do, you need some early wins, but you have to assess the team and you have to make changes if you're going to do it in the first 90 days. And um, I am not a big fan of coming in and firing people um, just for the sake of firing them. So, you know, I spent a lot of time with the team in the first 90 days, getting to know them uh, and getting comfortable with them. They'd been around. So my guy, and one of the good things about coming in from NBC and Stanford was so Jim Bell and Gary Zinkel and Mark Lazarus and, you know, Sam Flood and all the guys up at NBC, they all knew the team. So I was, and they knew me, they knew me better than they knew the team. Cause I'd been working up there for eight years and the Telemundo guys would come in, you know, once in a while, they would do the Olympics. The first world cup Telemundo ever did was the 2015 uh, women's world cup in Vancouver. Um, but they were really known to the Stanford guys through the Olympics. They had done Brazil in 2016. That's actually where I accepted the job from Cesar Conde was in Rio at the Olympics in 2016 in August. Um, so I did a, a, a real fast assessment and did a lot of questioning of friends and people I knew in Stanford and they all passed the test. They did. And, uh, you know, I, I don't say that like, as if I'm hiding from something I would have had to make some tough choices, but they didn't have to. So it was getting to know the team. It was getting to know FIFA. I spent a bunch of time back and forth to Zurich, getting to know the principals, um, my clients, if you will, at, well, I'm their client, we're writing them a check, but you know, rights holders have this great thing. You pay them a ton of money and then you treat them like they're the client. It's like, wait a minute, 
giving you a billion dollars over three cycles and I'm, I'm really the client, but you know, if you want to renew the rights fee, uh, the rights deal, you better keep them as the client. So got to know the, uh, the Zurich people really well. I think in my first 10 days, I was on a plane to Zurich and did a lot of back and forth and there were some changes, et cetera. Went to Moscow, met with the uh, ambassador to the Soviet Union from the United States, John, oh, his last name escapes me, John Huntsman. John Huntsman, he's in uh, Utah. Great guy, great keyboard player too. Um, so I got to know him. Um, and then I got to know the Russian local organizing committee. I went to Moscow a few times. Um, actually, I got there in September of 16. We had the Confederations Cup in Russia in June of 17. So six months later, we were put, it's only 16 games, eight teams. So, but, you know, I got to St. Petersburg and I was in Sochi and I was in Moscow and, and got to meet a lot of different people. And then we learned a lot from the Confederations Cup, something we won't learn in Qatar because there's no Confederations Cup in Qatar prior to Qatar, which is a real issue for me and the team and all rights holders. But um, yeah, so we learned a lot in Moscow, what works, what doesn't work, how the airlines, how do we get stuff from here to there. Um, and you know, I only went to those four cities. There were 10 in some of them. There were two games or three games, but you know, we had to fly people who covered something like, I forget, it was 2 million square miles. If you did like point to point to point to point, it was some gigantic number. And, you know, we didn't miss a spot. We didn't miss a billboard. We didn't miss a minute. Um, we had 64 games of perfection pre and post studios in Red Square. Um, it was unbelievable. And won an Emmy and hit our numbers, kept our costs down, sold more than, and that was one place where having been a sales guy, I could call BS on some of the sales numbers I saw when I got there. So we immediately raised digital by $20 million. I think we raised TV by 10, which just gave me more money to spend to produce it. So we got to do a better job producing it. That's what bought the Red Square Studio, mm -hmm. uh, which cost like 5 million bucks. So um, yeah, it was, it was like, I think it was like, I said this, like, I feel like this, this job is the president of Telemundo and the first World Cup. It was like everything that had gone into my career from September of 1976 as a network radio buyer at Ted Bates to bringing in um, a successful World Cup to NBC Universal. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great. And then that's so we're going to uh, close on this question because I think that's a great way of summing up. Um, I'll close on one more question, though, which is a question we ask all of our guests is, you know, we have students and a lot of students who are either uh, – looking to enter or looking to progress their career in the sports industry. Uh, I've had some great tips throughout the podcast, but what are some, you know, from one of the things we like to ask guests, particularly ones that have hired people before, what are you looking for when you're hiring people and who are looking to get into the sports industry or ro roles within the various different um, types of entities that you looked at? You know, what are the things you're looking for in, in, in people that you're hiring uh, for those types of roles within those positions? So it's, it's a number of things, um, I think. Um, the first is the first 10 seconds. It's the handshake. It's the look in the eye. It's the um, ability to be present. Um, it's, it's a little bit of manners, common sense, um, business acumen, how they dress, how they walked in. Do they look down? Do they look up? Do they look sideways? So there's a, to me, the first 10 seconds are pretty important. It's kind of like Snapchat. I think you get three on Snapchat. Um, so that's one, um, curiosity, I go back to my traits and what made yep. me successful being curious. I want them to ask me a lot of questions when I, I'll too many people on the other side of the desk, you know, the interviewer talk way too much. 
they don't listen nearly enough. And that is just bad hiring. It's almost malpractice, right? You have to let the interviewee talk. You have to ask them a few questions, let them go and read them, see what they say. Got to be curious. I think it's great if you're comfortable being uncomfortable. I know the interview process is uncomfortable. So I want to see people who are comfortable. I want to see people who are prepared, who know who I am. They've Googled me. They've Googled the company. Um, they know what they're doing in the room. Um, and so, you know, those are important ones. For sports in particular, the best way to never get hired by me is to come in and tell me what a big sports fan you are. Yeah. Because it's a business. It's a business. It's not a sport. And um, when they come in and, oh, my God, I'm a big sports fan. I'm really good. I play basketball for the University of Virginia. I don't really care what you did in court. <laughs> and so, you know, I think those are, those are, those are the things I look for. Yeah, that's really great advice. So, Ray, we appreciate the, the time. We appreciate the insight. Appreciate the, uh, the uh, journey through your career. I think it's been really helpful. Um, thank you for making the time. I think, as you mentioned, there were several topics in there that in and of themselves could be their own podcast. So hopefully we'll have you back <laughs> talk about some of those other topics in detail. Um, sure. Podcast. So, Ray, thanks for the time. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks, Adam.